when I was about the age of Noah, my son, not the one that built the ark, you know, although the beard's growing, it's not quite to that sort of 400 years old type stage yet. Um, but, but when I was about my son's age, um, we had a, a computer club at school. It was quite a new computer club. We had one computer at the time in the entire school. Um, and we, we got shown uh, at the start of the computer club um, a film, and I do mean a film, I think it was a 16mm film, you know, and a nice dodgy projector the, up in one of the science labs before they'd done the refit and the big hardwood and 1950s benches. Um, a film that I'd actually, uh, I've since discovered, came out the same year as I'd been born. So it was already 12 years old, or thereabouts, by that stage. And uh, considering it was about computers, um, it was slightly out of date by the time we saw it. And uh, having seen it on YouTube the other day, um, having done a bit of Googling, it's, uh, it's an interesting historical artefact, let's put it that way. Um, but the, the, the title was uh, G-I-G-O, Garbage In, Garbage Out. And the film talked about what a computer was and how it counted in binary. And it showed lots of punched cards and punched tape. But the title comes from the concept that... Uh, if the program, if the computer code is wrong, or the wrong data, the wrong information on the punched card is put into the machine, then the program would produce a load of rubbish. You put in rubbish, you get rubbish out. And that always holds true. It doesn't matter how old that film was, that rule in computing still holds today on whatever app you've got, whatever program, whatever bit of punch card you're still using. The Pharisees, long before the days of computing, held a similar law in their heart. If ritual had not been followed, if hands had not been washed before a meal, then there was contamination of the soul. Now, while the principle of the law might actually seem to be good for food hygiene in the modern way of understanding, you know, we get our five-star rating on the kitchen because we wash our hands, we have clean surfaces, we don't have the gaps in there, our pots are nice and clean, our kettle, everything. Not that we've got a kettle with the hydroboil, but you know what I mean. All those things. It's our knowledge that such action prevents spread of bacteria. But we also know that it is the food that becomes contaminated, and maybe our tummies too if we eat that contaminated food. If we don't wash our hands before eating a biscuit from the box, we don't end up spiritually unclean. 
how many of us came into the building tonight and got a drink and maybe a biscuit and before doing so did a ritual washing of our hands. I would imagine none. The issue, of course, that comes from the Pharisees that come from Jerusalem and note that it's mentioned that they've come out from Jerusalem here. They've come out to cause trouble. They're not on a day trip just to enjoy themselves. Well, maybe they are enjoying themselves, but they're not just seeing the sights. They've gone out of the city, away from the temple, to cause trouble. And they're probably down near uh, Lake Galilee, where um, the previous chapter has been based. The Pharisees are not thinking of food hygiene. But they're probably bringing a bit of a, an objection to the first thing that they can see the disciples doing that is different from what they would do. And it's actually... something that they raise that's based on what would maybe happen after having been to a marketplace because you see if you go to the marketplace you meet other people you meet people that are not like you people maybe that are Gentiles and of course Gentiles and any interaction with them was considered unclean. In fact, the shadow of a Gentile passing across the cooking pot or the plate or the kettle would be considered to render that item unclean and it would require ritual washing. But this ruling on ceremonial washing is said to come from the traditions of elders rather than anything prescribed by the law handed from the Lord to Moses to the people. It's not about what God says. It's about the rule that has been made and the enforcement that the people have been bringing, a rule made by man. The counter-argument that Jesus uses to begin his defence of his friends' actions seems at first a little obscure. You know, and I wonder, you know, do we always... Um, go for the straight answer when somebody asks us a question you know I, I sometimes wonder if uh, if politicians have studied the way Jesus responds to the Pharisees because they, um, they sometimes go on this interesting route they sometimes get nowhere near the answer, at least Jesus comes back to what makes somebody defiled But he starts his response 
not with anything about encountering Gentiles. Nothing about washing hands. But instead, he addresses a subject about the law, honouring the father and the mother. Sometimes it's tricky for us to know what it means to honour the mother and father. No, it's not the same as obeying what the mother and father tell you to do. It's not as simple as that. Perhaps when we're young it is in some way about learning from our parents what is right and what is wrong. Getting those first bits that gives us the basic understanding of what it is. But it's about having respect across generations and about family ties and that strong message um, that is within the Hebrew text about supporting each other as a family. We see how widows are supported within the family. And be it by marrying a, a a brother-in-law or receiving support in some other way and, and that's what Jesus starts off the approach here it's about how a child supports their struggling parent When parents may have need of financial help of their children, the child should, under the law, do what they can to support that parent. Now that might mean selling land or their home or doing something with their crops that's different from what they would want. But by setting it aside for God, by declaring it Corbin, it automatically, immediately stopped that from being a possibility. It ring-fenced that item. Now that doesn't mean to say it went straight to the religious authorities. It didn't. Quite often the person carried on working the land, getting the benefit from the crops, living in that house. But they just said, you know what? I'm sorry, Mum. I can't support you because this house... This farm, the proceeds of the land, they're not mine anymore. I've given them to God. Though they were still enjoying the benefits of owning them. A ring-fenced asset, but perhaps one that never 
actually benefits God. In fact, by setting it aside as Corbin, sometimes it meant that God's will was not honoured at all. By setting it aside as Corbin, something established by tradition, not by law, the law, the law handed down the commandments were broken. And because it was seen as following tradition, nothing was done. No penalty was given. It was as if no crime had taken place. The traditions of elders were used by the Pharisees to their personal advantage as a means of circumventing the law. And yet here they come lording it over the disciples and saying, oh, you're going against what should be done. You're going against the traditions. But it was not the traditions that were important. And Jesus carries on the argument into saying, what defiles, what makes the person wrong and unclean is not the garbage that goes in but it is the garbage that comes out we are not simple computers calculating in zeros and ones though we do need to process what is received and act upon it we need to recognise what is of God and what is evil. It's not whether we hear foul language, but whether we speak it. Hearing gossip is different to spreading it. Having people be unkind to us does not directly make us evil, but failing to be people of grace and love does make us wrong. It's not whether we drink alcohol, but whether we allow ourselves to become intoxicated and behave irresponsibly, lacking self-control. Which, of course, self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. We may choose... We may choose to put personal barriers in place to prevent these things happening we may choose to isolate ourselves not to watch certain television not to go to certain places we may choose never to drink alcohol and those decisions might be part of our personal convictions and that's fine and that's good for us they are structures that help us avoid temptation. 
However, these are not God's law, but they are traditions that we make for ourselves or that others before us have made. So it'd be wrong to expect all others of the faith to obey them. We have to remember that while there are things that we would love to see happen, we can't make a law that says that that's what should happen. And we have to be wary of making traditions that, and trying to enforce traditions. I'd love to stand up in the morning and say, everyone should attend the evening service. You know, you all been a brownie point here, you know, you're here tonight. Everyone must attend. But although well-intentioned, it would be dishonourable to the teaching that's actually here. Because it would be a human-made law. A tradition. The news about uh, the fishing around Rockall uh, led me to sort of look it up. And you sort of click on one thing, and then you click on another thing. and, And before you know it, you're looking at stories of religious life on St Kilda the nearby islands well, nearby in relative terms to Rockall and uh, in the 19th century there was a a minister there, Reverend Mackay Uh, he was of the the wee free and he decided that there would be three services on the Sabbath each sort of two to three hours long That's fine. That's his. But what did that actually do to the faith of the people on St Kilda? Did it build them up? Did it make them strong? Did they rejoice in their up to nine hours on the Sabbath? A visiting journalist, John Sands, proclaimed the Sabbath was a day of intolerable gloom. And I don't think he was talking about the weather. (coughs) We have to get the balance right between saying what we enjoy, how we worship, how we delight in what we do. and not want someone to think likewise about us. Where worship is imposed rather than coming through freedom to give glory to God, the response is not what it should be, no matter how much we ourselves delight in the idea. I have no plans to introduce an afternoon service in addition to the evening one. Mark, in his gospel at this point, passes comment on the words of Jesus. Here, Jesus has made all food clean to eat. 
that the old rules are gone. We see more of that, of course, in Acts with Peter and the cloth descending. And being told in his vision, you know, get up and eat. Is Mark's little commentary there perfectly well timed? Did he add it in? Not so sure. And it poses a wider question in, uh, has Jesus gone further here at this point? Is it purely food laws that he's saying are done away with? Or is there a wider crossing out of the Mosaic law as a whole? Certainly, the law seems to still stand in Jesus' eyes. Or at least, the commandments. He has just berated the Pharisees for not following one of the commandments. And then, he goes on to speak of a dozen evil acts which are against God. Six that are physical acts, things that we could commit, even though we're not supposed to. Things that you can do directly. And six that are a bit more internal. And they all originate in the heart. They don't come from whether we've washed our hands. They don't come from the food that we've eaten. But they come from the decisions that we choose to make. The list Jesus brings, interestingly, includes that it starts sexual immorality as a separate act from adultery or lewdness, which I've also listed. Um, it's not necessarily clear what that is, how it's different, whether it's intended to cover um, rape, whether it's consenting premarital sex, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's the sexual act within adultery, adultery having a looser meaning, such as Jesus suggests in Matthew 5, whereas everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already com committed adultery in their heart. We don't know quite what that point is there. The, the other ones are a lot more clear in their expression. But there is a direct list saying these are things that Jesus is, are against what God's intention are. 
and we can reflect on them more if we think of that passage that Paul gives us about the fruit of the Spirit which is good and of course the things that are to be avoided. But regarding our relationship with God, regarding our faithfulness, it's not the outward influence that's important. But it is how we respond. It's not that there is tradition, but how controlling that tradition is. You know, any church that you ever see established that is a new church and say, no, we're not going to have any traditions, we're not going to do anything that way, within a couple of months have developed their own liturgy of how things are done, their own way of structuring a service, their own way of pastoral care, their own way of choosing the hymns, their own way of leadership. Every church ends up developing a tradition, albeit a tradition that's only existed for a couple of weeks. But tradition comes. But it's how controlling that tradition is and how free we are to be God's people to have our freedom in Christ, to worship, to give glory, to be moved by the Spirit, and to proclaim his love to all the world in a way that truly does reflect love that the Father has for us. So let's not be Pharisee-like hypocrites but delight in our relationship with Jesus, the one who fulfills the law, who forgives the repentant sinner, and who offers the believer eternal life with the one Heavenly Father. Amen.